Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. Now, today we're talking about commercial property and we're talking education. We've got a previous guest on the show, Scott O'Neill from Rethink Investing, and he's talking to us about the Darth of commercial property knowledge amongst your average property investor. We contrast, of course, residential versus commercial, and we come across some of the sticking points that he sees as myths as to why commercial property is dangerous or should be avoided in favour of residential property. Uh, Scott gives us some tips on how we should upskill ourselves to be able to have worthwhile conversations with commercial property buyers agents and doing those commercial deals it's an insightful chat with scott live from greece with crickets in the background as well Uh, but hopefully you hopefully you enjoy that ambiance as much as i'm sure you will enjoy the interview here's scott scott o'neill thanks for joining me back on geared for growth g'day mark good to be back it's been a little while since we last spoke and you're coming to us from sunny Greece, I should say terribly hot and sunny Greece right now. It's been a couple of years since we last spoke and yeah, I've been uh, seeing you pop up all over the place. It's the most famous depreciator in the land, it seems. <laughs> Once you get in my net, you really can't escape. Uh, we pay good money to <laughs> bad people to make sure that happens, mate. Um, but uh, enough about me. We're going to talk about you and we're going to talk about commercial because I suppose um, whilst you have a lot of experience in the residential space, both as a buyer's agent, as an investor, you're probably more well known as a commercial investor. And I, I suppose a lot of people get the idea with their property investing journey that they might start with residential, but the end goal is commercial, or many people will say the end goal is development. But the educational standards against, you know, for the average real estate punter, I would say, you would argue is is not there compared to residential in that commercial space. Yeah, it's it's really light hand in commercial, and and it was a big problem when I first started looking at commercial myself, which was around two thousand and. 14, I think I started looking at it and my reason was I was tapped out of residential lending. Basically, I had a, about 15 odd houses and my salary couldn't cope with the, uh, you know, the stress levels on the mortgage that they were applying at the time. But commercial, my broker was basically saying there's a different lending avenue, you know, through lease stock loans and, you know, basically the income from commercial was significantly higher too which yeah. contributes to um, easier lending. But but then I started looking at commercial properties and there was nothing out there. Like there was books in America written 20 years ago, like for their market. And um, yeah, Australia was just untouched. And yeah, like you look at residential and, you know, there's a thousand books, there's a hundred every, every year, new ones coming out. Like it's all the same old stuff. Everyone knows about it, but um yeah, it was a big problem and it made the whole thing seem risky and daunting and, and I did delay it a couple of years because of that, um, which I thought was a bit of a, you know, one of those lessons learned. I wish I, I could have somehow sped it up back then, but I couldn't because of the lack of resource. So it wasn't necessarily your idea about commercial being a better asset class or better returns or better gain. You originally were attracted to it just to unlock your borrowing capacity because of the different financial arrangements with lenders? Yeah, that diversity was a big play. I was always a cash flow seeking investor, but um, 
as you know, a lot of the research shows a lot of those cash flow assets grow as well, if not better than some of the lower yielding assets as well. So I was having good results chasing things like unit blocks, which in a way is uh, potentially a you know halfway of a measure of a commercial property anyway from a lending point of view. But uh, I was getting very good growth, very good cash flow. And then basically because of that growth in residential, the rents weren't keeping up. So the yields were lower for new purchases. But commercial, it was like it's like going back in time, it felt. The, the yields were just fantastic. The It made it worthwhile because my whole goal with investing was to replace my income of my wife and myself. And, you know, that's obviously engineer working horrible hours and my wife was literally following me around the country as I did the new, you know, next project. So I thought I can't live like that forever and chasing low yielding assets would have just delayed that process. So, um, yes, the cash flow was the number one thing, but, um, I was always there for the growth too. And yeah, the research, like we're just, we're releasing a new book in a month and, you know, there's there's a lot of research on capital growth rates for commercial properties uh, over the last 30 years, and they're actually about the same for every asset class, including office, which is the ugly duckling at the moment, as mm. the average growth rates of residential investing. So it's around six six odd percent average capital growth commercials been getting for industrial retail. Um, it, it fluctuates slightly between the different capital cities, but you're getting good growth, but instead of getting a two or a three percent net return, that's normally a four or five percent gross return in residential, you're getting a six, seven, or an eight percent, or even nine percent net return. So it's triple the cash flow with similar growth. So yes, I'm a big believer you do get better returns for that reason. I think that will surprise people to hear that the capital growth side of commercial can be as strong as residential, because I think typically in, in your average investor's mindset, you go commercial when you've got a little bit of an asset base, uh, but you want to chase that cash flow. Would you say that's yeah. the way that most people approach it? Exactly. And this is where it comes down to the lack of education. These myths are propagated through the market by experts, um, mostly residential experts, mind you, saying why like these are one of the risks that you don't get as good growth from commercial. And I don't know who came up with that, but it's obviously stuck for decades. And, and I was surprised when I saw these figures, like we basically went and looked over thousands of properties with statisticians and looked at the square meter rate of say a, an office building in 1990 and versed it to the 2022 rates. So you can clearly see the building appreciation value on a square meter basis. And, yeah, it was fascinating, the results. And it, it did surprise me because even myself, after investing in thousands of commercial properties, I had that belief that, yeah, the growth long-term was a little bit lower. And it, it is slightly lower, but we're talking maybe 1% or 2% lower. Mm. Uh, not what they say is, you know. And and this, again, the lack of education out there, like even when you hear um, other podcasters talk about commercial property you can you can see when they go through the pros and cons list i was listening to one the other day and you know they they quote things like multi-family offices and stuff like that they're literally quoting a list that they've googled from the us and they're quoting it for australian like there's little things you can pick up uh, you know when you're in the game and you just realize these people are talking as experts but they're just going off whatever the internet's told them and uh mm. 
yeah, there's, there's just a lack of experience in this space. And I think that's why it is kind of in the too hard basket for most Australians. When uh, we were chatting off air, I sort of mentioned that there wasn't really many people that I could see operating in the commercial space uh, back when you started popping up. That's obviously changed now and you don't have to look at textbooks from 20 years ago based in America. There are books available. I mean, you've written at least one of them. We know there's another one uh, yeah. on the way. But how has that impacted the consumer? Do you think the consumer has upskilled their level of education or is it a little bit stagnant? Um, and, and, and how does the, the, the focus that education is coming from some of these people influence that? Uh, yeah, it's a great point. And I have seen a big change in the market. So, yes, the consumer is more educated and... They're, they're almost educated because everyone's looking for an alternative. Like the, it's, it's pretty hard to get into a retirement stage with residential now. As, as much as all the experts will argue against me, um, yields are too low. Uh, even if you've got a, let's say, a, I don't know, a $5 million debt-free residential portfolio, if you're only getting a 4% gross yield on that, you know, minus your outgoings, you might be clearing 2% on $5 million. That's not a, really a, a worthwhile cash flow. You may as well stick it into CBA shares and get your dividends that way. Like it's it's just too low yielding. So the market is needing another product by they mathematically need it essentially because they just need that extra cash flow. So um, people are wanting to get educated, and there's some good books out there now. There's podcasts. I, I think the market has changed a lot in the last five years, and it's made my job easier as a commercial buyers agency because. When I started presenting, say, industrial properties to clients in 2015, most would immediately say, in you know, polite terms, you're an idiot, don't look at that, that's too risky, that's junk, why would you buy that, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because um, it looked like a dirty old shed to them or, you, or retail, you know, they just argue, oh, everything's going online and, you know, well, it's, you know, it, it, it's a KFC, you know, it's got a 15-year lease on it, like it's not going online. Um, but now that, yeah, I think people can actually break the segments down. Like when they hear doom and gloom, they can say, well, maybe that's just the CBD office market, but we understand logistics is booming, uh, healthcare is booming. Like, you know, there's, you don't need to explain that to people now, which, which is a refreshing change. And, and I think that trend will continue, but it's still like, it's still a one out of 10 compared to residential. The amount of education in residential is, it's, it's almost an overload, but it's, Great, you can pick a strategy and drill deep down into that to the point where you know every stat you need to know. You've got the right experts and dozens of them to choose from to help you down that strategy. Um, and and it's yeah, it's really good. So it's, it's hard to make big mistakes in residential. But commercial, like I said, it's still stage one out of ten. I think it's got a long way to go. Yeah. And, and given your sort of predilection for commercial and you're talking about triple the yields, a, a comparable rate of capital growth, maybe a little bit less, but once you work it out on balance, it's more attractive and an asset. It begs the question, why aren't people buying commercial from the beginning? Is it that initial portfolio building that stops them? And would you recommend that people have a number of residential properties before they go into commercial because of, say, risks of vacancy or just the, the higher price of entry for a quality asset? 
The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Yeah, well, I think the number one reason people don't start in commercials, the deposit. So instead of a 10% down, as you can do in residential, you generally work off 30%. So three times the deposit. That is a killer for most first-time buyers because, you know, unless you've got a gift from mum and dad or something like that or an inheritance, um, it's it's not really viable for a young investor or someone who's saving from nothing to get into commercial, uh, especially those lower price point commercials can actually have a little bit more risk to them. Think about um, a small warehouse, you might have a, an electrician in there. He's either gonna grow and need a bigger space or go out of business because his business is no good. So the little entry level properties can have a little bit more inherent risk to them. And that's why I do think it is good to start with residential. And you know that's the reason why I've always kept our residential arm of rethink investing like I, I do believe the returns are better in commercial like I've seen it and um, I'm one of the few that have gone very deep in both asset classes and and, can have, and seen it firsthand but yeah it, it, in that entry level space it is wise to start at residential but um, you just can't make the mistake of just blindly sticking to residential like you see some guys in the in the media that have bought a hundred residential houses like that's that's like a it's a mugs game really like you who would like that you literally it's a big mistake if you do that and you're ignoring the reality of life that the maintenance is going to start killing you the cash flow is literally too inefficient to make it work unless you've got another business behind you or you're paying all cash like it just doesn't make sense so you need to transition into commercial and every good investor with enough equity behind it generally thinks about that or like you said maybe a development you don't just keep doing the whole buy and hold resi thing it's it's you know the only reason i like resi as much as i do is the leveraging benefit but that taps out at some point because if you start acquiring a large enough debt it becomes risky and then i saw a lot of people lose everything in the gfc because banks turn the screws on them um you know there was a guy in brisbane when like I used him as a buyer's agent once and you know he, he had about 200 houses and he lost half in the GFC because he was over leveraged and the banks changed lending policies that's what can happen if you follow the wrong strategy too long mm. and I think uh, any of the people playing at home that listen to a few podcasts probably know who you're talking about I've got a fair guess myself now um, so let's say we have built a bit of a portfolio at least to the point where we're we're comfortable we can redraw equity and look at a commercial property or we've got a lovely mum and dad who's a baby boomer that are passing their their wealth down instead of buying a three-wheel motorbike like Meadow Lee ads tell them they should do what what is this this one of the worst intros to a question I've ever done by the way but it's nice to share it with you Scott what um what, what are the gaps in the knowledge that people have when it comes to commercial when they're taking their first step? Obviously, you've got a commercial 
property investing podcast. So you must have imparted a lot of knowledge on people from that very starting point. Can you pin it down to to what's missing in their education? Um, so the, I guess it's the myths of commercial property, which are the one the reasons people hold back. I think so. The long vacancy thing. Yes, the vacancies are longer, um, but the way I look at vacancies is you get an accumulation of all, all, you know, 10 years of vacancy in one go. So the average tenure we've done, we've done research with our own clients is about nine years for a tenant. Um, so the tenants stay longer and when they leave, you might have a three, four month vacancy. You know, imagine you've got a residential property and you might have four weeks vacancy a year, times that by 10 years, you've got 40 weeks, you know, you might have, you know, half of that. But either way, it's still a very similar vacancy rate over the long term. Uh, your tenants just stay longer. Um, so I think you just, and if you're worried about a vacancy, you can really research your way around them by well. You know, like by the dentist with a medical fitter who's been there for 20 years, like you're not going to have to deal with a vacancy in that case. Um, you might just buy something with a five or a 10 year lease in place. So you've got five to 10 years to build a buffer for that inevitable vacancy that you'll get. And I think you just got to get educated around how to plan that um, rather than just go, you know, the classic Facebook comment is, oh, I see four lease signs all over the place. Yeah, but they're like retail places on Parramatta Road, which there's no viable solution for a customer there anymore because you can't park there and there's too much supply and they're probably going to knock the thing down and develop on it at some point. Um, you know, you can't stereotype commercial properties with just, the bad ones you see. And that's what the novice investors will do. So that's one. The capital growth is the other, like, you know, and that, that even surprised me. But, you know, I look at industrial property. It, it's you know, over the last couple of years, it's grown about 50%. So it's all supply and demand driven, like anything. Um, more of the rent, like properties are growing as in a relationship to the rent growth as well. So, you know, obviously if CPI is higher, rents are going to grow higher because commercial leases are often attached to CPI increments. And, you know, it all kind of helps the growth, what, what's happening with, you know, a high inflation environment. And that might punish residential more. Um, and look, it's just the... Everyone feels comfortable with residential. So I think that would be the, the other one, that the comfortability of, and just like it's not a well-trodden path. Like it is, there's less competition out there in, in every aspect. And that's that's why I like it. I feel like I'm, I've got a genuine advantage when I buy a commercial property because I'm not dealing with hundreds of emotional buyers that feel like they know better. And then you've got to, you know, there's, there's just no, like you're just buying a vanilla product with residential, you know, it's like a homogenous type thing. It's a house or it's a unit um, and they all kind of go up with the comparable sales. But commercial property, it's, the products are more unique. Like if you're lucky enough to ever buy a shopping center, you're probably buying the only shopping center in that suburb that's been there for 50 years. It's probably always going to be some type of shopping center or, or a mixed use type asset. And and I think the price points is the other one. Like a lot of people think you need to be a multi-millionaire to get into commercial property. Uh, we're buying about 10 properties per month under, I'd say under 1.25 mil at the moment with our client base. So that's just that's just us, you know, when, one company in a, in a massive market. So we're buying lots of deals 
you know, as cheap as 300 grand in a, in a capital city. So they're out there. Um, you don't need to be a multi-millionaire. It helps because you can choose from more assets, but, um, but it's just sort of all of the above. It's just, and you know, and once people kind of stick to residential, it, you know, it can get, can get lazy and not want to learn a different asset class and just stick to it because you're ticking boxes. You're relatively happy with your life and then you blink and 20 years pass passes and that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's what happens. Yeah. I know. I used to be young. I don't know what happened. It seemed like <laughs> yesterday. Um, so Scott, you mentioned one of the barriers is, is people know residential and perhaps they have a little bit of fear of commercial and, and no one, likes to feel stupid or they don't know what's going on. But, I mean, that's all the reason why people should engage a specialist, right? So, um, you know, you talked about learning a new asset class, but how important is that if you're using a buyer's agent? Of course, you've got the ongoing maintenance of that. Do people really need to invest in their education on an ongoing basis with commercial or, or can they can they trust experts and, and it be a bit of a hands-free investment? If you get the right expert, you can trust them. But how do you know that? Like if you don't know the asset class. So, you know, it's easy for me to say, yeah, pick the right expert and you're fine. And you are if you pick the right expert. But there's a lot of pretenders out there. We're talking offline. You know, one of the things we're seeing a lot of residential buyers agents do is because the market's got tighter, they're struggling. So how do we boost revenue? Let's go at a commercial division onto our business. Not just hire a local sales agent that sold a few industrial properties or something like that, and and you know they're they're basically not going to give you the advice you need. Um, it's 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 a watered down, quick advice, and and yeah, we, we don't even run into these guys into the market yet, but I predict we will in the future more of them because um, more will try this avenue. And if you get the right you know wrong expert because they you know, they're just trying to make money out of you. Um, yeah, it could be a disaster, but I prefer educated clients. Like one of the reasons I, you know, wrote a book and did a podcast on it, it was purely just to almost just help the discussion with commercial properties. So when you show them a property, they're, they're already halfway there and they, they're asking the right questions. And the great thing about my job as a commercial buyer's agency, when we've got a good property, the property sells itself. If they know what they're looking at, I don't even need to tell them much other than reread the stats on the property and go well, look google the tenant that's how long they've been there like it's just repeating the facts it's there's no wishy-washy sales pitch about oh look this is the infrastructure this is the growth rates of predictions of the future here's some you know loose data that back up my story there's none of that it's literally it's a deal it's a going concern sale it is what it is and you either like the numbers or you don't and that's the brilliant part of it it's just a numbers game and the more educated they are the more they'll make their own decision and we don't have to push it and then their clients less stressed through the process um they can deal with the lawyers when they come smashing them with hundreds of emails about lease reviews and you know what what the you know things like a or to make good clause provision is like all those things they kind of know about now. And um, obviously, if you've got the right expert, they'll do all this for you anyway. But I'm just talking what happens if you're starting fresh. Uh, it's good just to have the basics. And and then you'll kind of have your own opinion and obviously just be open to suggestions from there. That's, that's basically how I'd play it if I was a brand-new investor myself. Excellent. And for the brand-new investors that are 
a little bit troubled by some of those myths, myths that you talked about before, you know, things like vacancy, things like a, a lack of growth. There are ways that you can select assets to kind of diversify away from those risks, right? Um, you can purchase, say, a shopping centre that has uh, a variety of different tenancies that might not suffer from different economic cycles. Um, yeah. How would you recommend people go about that? And, and is that just the domain of, of the wealthy that uh, are looking at those, you know, multi-million dollar properties? Well, look, surprisingly, a lot of mum and dads would have access to this. Like you can just, you know, refinance your other assets or your house and you might have a pretty big chunk of a deposit there and you know like you can buy supermarkets for two million dollars so you'll need about you know let's say you're doing a 30 percent deposit on that you need about six six hundred plus uh you know your stamp duty in that so you know you're looking at six seven hundred grand equity to buy a supermarket in a capital city in some cases it, it won't be a Woolworths but it might be an IGA if food works a spa these types of things and they could have long leases they can be brilliant investments like ones that you'll hold on and pass to your kids and um yeah like you don't have to be as wealthy as you think the, the budget as you go higher you are going to outbid many other investors and you can get into what I call is the quiet part of the markets like once you get over about look it changes month to month but Right now, if you're lucky enough to have a total budget over about four million, uh, there's not much competition in that space. Um, the fund managers are quiet at the moment because interest rates are higher. So basically, the more you spend, the more you can enter into the quiet zone of the market, and that means you'll get a better dollar for dollar deal. Um, so it is a place where you kind of end up and with investing. So it's not a place to you know dip your toe in. If you're going to do it, do it properly, you know, buy the best quality asset you can. And quality is the key word. It's not about spreading your risk to five different assets, poorer quality, cheaper ones. It's it's about buying the trophy asset if you can. And, and it would be the last property you ever sell outside of your home that you live in. Like, And that's what generally happens. My clients, once they buy uh, these types of assets, they more like I'd say 80% of the time will start selling off their resis to then try replicate the deal they've done. And right. it's just, again, a cash flow and a retirement strategy, you know, selling off low yielding assets to get into high yielding. Yeah. And if you can think about your own personal portfolio, are, are there standout commercial properties that you just kind of think, uh, I wasn't sure at the time, but that one's turned out to be a real peach. Is there any sort of common denominator for those assets where you kind of think, oh, wow, like I didn't realise that this sort of thing existed when I was back, you know, going yeah. town to town as an engineer buying my resis trying to, to, to build a portfolio? Yeah, look, uh, three, three out of the last four properties I bought have been neighbourhood shopping centres. So I'm, I'm very deep into the retail and, um, and I'm very glad I have been because I found there's very good value-add strategies from it. So this is something I would have never predicted, but like my most recent one I bought last year was, uh, you know, it had a vacancy coming up. Basically, there was an IGA that was, um, you know, not, not performing super well because the Audi was in that same business and um, but we're looking to replace it with one on gym and once we've done all that the equity is going to jump about two and a half million dollars just by changing the tenants because the rent's been significantly raised per square meter 
So I bought it for a yield play, but all of a sudden there's another deposit in there just from changing tenants and increasing the rent because um, it will make the property more attractive. And, and not only that, the gym will bring a lot more people to the property itself and that will probably help all the other businesses. So there's a good long-term effect there in terms of renewing other leases and getting better square meter rates. So um, these are the games you could play that you'd never really look at on the surface. And, you know, another shopping centre I bought in regional Queensland, I bought the neighbouring property, which was just land. So I'm just making more car spots and putting three more shops in it. So you can kind of increase the, the ground floor area that way as well. And so it, they're very active invest, investments and that's probably what, what's been the big surprise for me like they're not passive like um if you want passive just buy a shed with a 10-year lease and you won't do anything with it it'll be very boring but, yeah. some people like that i i you know i prefer doing stuff to things and um yeah it, it, it can be a pain in the eyes if you're not in the right mindset though because tenants will change and negotiate and you know be difficult at times just like they would with residential but that's all part of the game so if you're wanting to increase the value of a residential property, you could develop the site, you could renovate it, but you're quite limited in, in what you can, can do. And the valuation comes much more to sort of comparables rather than you know, what is the income uh, and yeah. working out a sort of a capitalization rate. But in commercial, you're saying there's a lot more things that you can massage, even just the length of tenancies or conditions of tenancies outside of you know refurbishments to to active actively change the way these properties are valued and manufacture that capital growth yeah so real high level summary if you res a commercial property behaves like residential when it's vacant so a vacant commercial property is done on a square meter comparable basis basically so you know like it might be three thousand dollars a square meter to sell a vacant shed in, you know, wherever it is. Um, and then if something sells for 3,100, that's a new market high and they'll all chase that 3,100 a square meter. So that's very similar to just like for like comparables. And then you've got to take into account the age of the building, the height, all that kind of stuff. So very comparable basis. But when there's a tenant in place, it's, it, there's a cap rate valuation. So off that, if you can double the rent, you double the purchase price because, um, and it's got to be within line of the market, but you might get a good deal. And this is what we do regularly for clients, find under-rented properties. So it's something that might be just 20% below market rent. And we know very easily because we've got a spreadsheet of similar tenants in that area paying more. You can go, well, there's 20% upside as soon as this lease ends or is renewed. And that's the easiest value uplift I've found in, in any asset class because it's just one negotiation and one lease and then it's done. You're not building, you're not remodeling things, you're not, um, yeah, there's just no real risk other than the tenant may not accept and you'll have to find a new one. But if you know the market, you can factor that into that decision as well. And at the end of the day, you are only trying to push it to market rates anyway. So there are market <laughs> rates because the market is paying it somewhere. So you've got to find those people. So I guess the risk is, is not as big as people might think it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Scott, uh, time flies when you're having fun. Um, I want to wrap this up, if I can, just to 
to to circle back on the topic, which is the level of education in commercial as opposed to residential, for the people that are looking to make that next step, what what are some of say the key principles that you think that they need to investigate or look at, or some resources that you would love them to be across before they would come and chat to someone like you? Yeah, so I think just listening to these types of podcasts will give you a real high level, quick intro to it. So that that's very important. So there's there's multiple podcasts out there. Um, I've created a resource and it's taken about a year to do it and it's all starting shortly. Um, it's called Rethink Commercial Education. So it's literally, we're bringing in about 10 commercial experts. So it's like pre-recorded modules. So, you know, if you go, I want to learn the difference between net letable area and gross letable area and how it, you know, how it differs, differences between the different asset classes, you can just go to that video and it tells you everything about it. There's spreadsheets, there's... Um, it's basically the resource that I would have wanted back then when I started to go, what are the risks with office? But if I'm going to buy office, what, are, what is a good type of office? Um, how do I avoid the traps? So um, that, that will be a unique product on the market. Um, and, yeah, so that's that would be the most comprehensive way. And then, yeah, just the books on top of that. Uh, but this, this is, you know, basically what I'm trying to make a uni degree equivalent of commercial property without the uni, essentially. So, um, yeah, that, that'll be exciting once that all starts. So, yeah, rethink commercial education. Absolutely, and the uh, investors will be the beneficiary of that with that uh, increase in education, which is why we're all here after all. So thanks very much for sharing those, uh, those tips with us today. No worries at all, mate. Cheers, Scott.